create lasting change, inspire others, and make a difference. You have joined the Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donaldson, and each week you will hear from distinguished co-hosts and guests as they share insights into impacting our culture from your neighborhood to the nations. I can't wait to get into our discussion with Steve Haas, who serves as the catalyst for World Vision, the largest Christian relief and development organization in the world. World Vision has operations now in nearly 100 countries with a staff of nearly 40,000 persons. Prior to World Vision, Steve worked for a number of years in the faith-based and international human rights sectors. For the past 18 years, he has been one of the organization's primary U.S. spokespersons, and I can tell you one of the most dynamic and anointed and knowledgeable speakers you will ever have for any event, and has traveled extensively uh, throughout the world, uh, providing humanitarian work. Uh, Germain, to this conversation, uh, Steve has been a significant voice in engaging Americans in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. And let me tell you, nobody is more knowledgeable than Steve Haas about this crisis. And as an organization, World Vision has provided care for, get this, 2.3 million children and their families. Steve, welcome to the Influencers Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. (laughs) (laughs) We can't wait either. And, you know, throughout our lives... Uh, God sends people in at times to mess up our worldview and to rearrange our priority furniture, if you will. And uh, you you have been that for me, my friend. Uh, you have messed me up in a good way. I love you. I'm so grateful uh, for how the Lord has used you in my life. And I want to start off by asking you to share a, a little bit about World Vision. Well, World Vision, as you stated, is a a fairly large organization now. They've been going on as of these last couple of months for 70 years. Hard to believe, Uh, but for 70 years, World Vision has been engaged in trying to bring Christian humanitarian relief and development to uh, kind of the broken pieces of our world, as one of our presidents used to say. Uh, And as as you stated, we have about 40,000 staff in nearly 100 countries, and we're doing everything from trying to bring in clean water, of which we're now the largest organization delivering that in the developing world, Uh, bring in jobs, bring in education, sanitation, health, hygiene, child protection, so that a community can be literally transformed. And that's probably the greatest joy I get on a regular basis is seeing not only people's lives changed in the field, but also people who have partnered with us and watching their lives changed because they get to engage in the way in which Jesus basically talked about in Matthew 25. When when I'm hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me something to drink. You know, When did we see that happen? Well, when you did this to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And so when we get to see that happen and we get to be a part of that, there's just something that happens in each one of us. And it has certainly happened to me over the last 18 to 20 years. And it's a vision from our neighborhoods to the nations. And 
It's certainly an honor for CityServe to partner with World Vision and your storehouse ministry. Uh, you have been the catalyst uh, for helping to launch CityServe in SoCal, uh, where we have these warehouses up and down uh, the state, and now also in Arkansas. We're looking at other locations. And this product, uh, Lion's Share, the product that we are distributing through local churches to our neighbors in need, is a result of World Vision and their partnership with major corporations. And we're so grateful for that, Steve. Well, I think the passage in John said it best. You know, when we operate in unity, people actually get to see who God is. And that's what's been happening. It gives us great joy across the organization when our U.S. programs is able to find its way into an individual home where somebody gets a product. It could be it could be dog food, I think, as we found out. Yes. Uh, even dog food could move the needle uh, to a table or a chair or a broken window that's fixed or just a hand out, uh, a hand up, uh, uh, someone touching you, uh, someone letting you know that you matter. When that happens in a community in such a demonstrative way, as has happened with churches up and down that I-5 corridor, amazing things begin to happen in those neighborhoods and for the glory of God. So we're, we're delighted to be partners with yours. And together we've been responding quickly and effectively to victims of disasters like the fire, fires in uh, Paradise, Northern California. And what's so, so cool about this is that this product that we're getting from these major companies, it's complementary to what other organizations like Samaritan's Purse and Convoy of Hope and uh, Salvation Army are providing because this is a lot of home furnishings. This is beds and other items that people have lost, you know, in these disasters. But the second thing is it's all done through the local church. And that church then can provide that continuum of care uh, for those that are grieving, those that have lost everything. And so what a partnership. And it's a great example. If God can get it through you, he'll give it to you because the Lord keeps on expanding uh, our ability together to help that local church. Amen. Well, it's been a great partnership. We look forward to seeing what the future holds. Well, Steve, let's talk about the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, many people describe the refugees as displaced persons. Uh, are they the same thing, or what's the difference? Well, in essence, some of their experiences is exactly the same. A, a displaced person, we would use that as a technical term, meaning someone that's been moved off their home, often due to violence, could be something environmental. But as we're going to probably talk a lot about Syrian refugees, these are people that due to the threat of violence or a violent event have had to move homes. They could have moved into a shelter. They could have moved into other family members' uh, locations, a mosque a church, but they they cannot live where they used to live. A, a refugee is someone who has crossed a border. But if you look at it from your and my sense, when you're actually talking with them, their realities are pretty much the same. They're not where they want to be. They're in a disadvantaged state. And often all of the constructs that would make life normal or at least livable have been taken away. And so now they're really in a situation in which if there's not somebody or some group there to help, they're really in harm's way. 
Well, it just seems like the problem is beyond what we can comprehend, but help us put our arms around uh, this crisis and, and what we can do. Yeah, well, when you talk about numbers, uh, this is the one that it just, it's boggling to my own mind that this number is not more in the common parlance uh, of, of, the, of the American culture or of the Western culture. There's 70 million plus people who now would be described as displaced, who mm. do not have a home, who have been moved off their land for some reason or another, much of it due to violence, uh, mankind's inhumanity to each other. Uh, and, and because of that, you've got every group and organization from the UN to government to philanthropy, et cetera, that, that are basically finding themselves tapped. Uh, how much further can we go? Uh, I hear this from UN officials on a regular basis. We didn't expect that this situation was going to go this long. We we fully expected that at some point the refugee would be able to go home. But because of the the tenuous nature of so many of these communities, people are stuck. They, they cannot go someplace else. They have to stay where they are. And often that place gives them no re no way to succeed or their children to be educated. And you look at countries like Lebanon, I mean, it's 1.5 million Syrian refugees, and they already had half a million Palestinian refugees out of a population of 6 million. And so the infrastructure in countries like Lebanon, I mean, it's just being stretched to the max. Yeah, everything is stretched. You think of Turkey, just north of Syria, they've got about 3.5 million uh, Syrian refugees. You go to Jordan, you've got upwards of about 600,000 to a million uh, refugees. And that's just the nation of Syria. If you were to drop down to South Sudan, you know, you talk to nations like Uganda, they took in a million South Sudanese. Incredible. Or the, or the third largest city in Kenya is a city named Dadaab. It's made up almost 100%, made up almost 100% of Somali refugees, the third largest city in Kenya. Mm. So again, we've got an issue that uh, we've got to deal with. Um, you, we can either see it as a problem or we can see it as a God-given opportunity. In other words, we don't believe God actually wants to see people as refugees or wants to see the violence that's returned to these families, but it's not beyond God to utilize these situations to bring people to the knowledge of himself and utilize people like us to actually be his hands and feet. Now, you've helped leaders like me and many others see it firsthand and to make sure that these statistics are not just numbers, but yet they represent people with a face, a name, a personality. And I remember uh, you and I and, and leaders from the Assemblies of God and SoCal Network and others, uh, we sat cross-legged in one of the refugee tents, you know, there in Lebanon, and we heard the stories. And I'll never forget uh, this mom with children uh, draped all over her. She said she wanted to die, but she said, I had to live for my children. I had to have hope for them. And you think about it. I mean, how many miles she carried her children to get to the the safety there, you know, in Lebanon, and so moving. I, I think of her often. But let's talk about uh, the typical refugee, if we can. Uh, what might they be like? 
uh, what uh, what comes to mind? Well, I think what is often surprising is half of the refugees are children. Uh, I, I think when we say refugee, because the issues become so politi- politicized inside our own country, that that has become almost on an equal wavelength with terrorist. So when someone says refugee, we immediately think of someone who's robed. You cannot see their face except for their eyes, and they're carrying some form of automatic weapon. The the truth is, these are families, um, and half of them are kids. Most of them, when they are adults, they're women. Um, Most of the refugee camp situation uh, that I'm in, whether it's a formal refugee camp in a place like Jordan or it's an informal set of tents, uh, of people throughout Lebanon and just kind of plop down on a farm field. These are typically a woman and her children. In many cases, she's lost her husband or her husband is still involved in uh, trying to set up home or involved in the conflict back in the country in which they've they've left. And these are usually moms who are as as caring for their children as any mother that you would meet. In fact, if anything, um, I've likened them to tiger moms uh, because they have been through so much and their uh, way of dealing with that is to try and create constructs where there really aren't any, to create a place of safety for the children that they have, but they're living in a tent and they're gonna live in that tent for anywhere of four to eight years. If they've been in that refugee situation since the war began, it's moving on the ninth year. And they're living in a tent. Mm, incredible. That, and that piece, I think we, mm. we, we don't want to walk away from that too quickly because there is a reason why someone would get into a boat and try to make it to Europe. And a lot of times we, 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 fumble with that thought because we think, why would, I mean, a parent can't even swim. I mean, there's these parents who are getting into these boats. Why would they get into a rickety boat that's overfilled by three times and, you know, basically risk the life and limb of their family to, to reach a land that may not even want them? Why would they do that? Well, I think there's a probably a better question. What are they leaving that is so bad like that? if in fact they really do love their children and their family. And I can guarantee you they do. So the situation that they're leaving is tenuous at best and dangerous. The situation they've gone into is in many ways hopeless and and creates um, disparagement. I mean, they just, they feel down on themselves. They can't get jobs. They, they, they don't see this resolving itself. They don't have hope. You know, there are many things that changed my paradigm uh, being with you in these camps. Uh, one was how some would even have keys to their homes in Aleppo and other cities in Syria, and they hold on to that key as a symbol of hope that one day they can return home. Uh, the fact is they don't want to come to America. They want to go home. It's correct. And home is a, a place that may not be there. Um, that's one of the problems we're facing now due to the fact that the war is really not over, uh, that there's still violence in many of these communities or the threat of violence returning. Many of these families, even though there's a cessation of, of hostilities in some of these communities, the idea of going back 
still is not a realistic option. And so they still hang on uh, with such vibrant you know, hope that in some cases they can go back to their home, put the key in, and, and the door will open. And the reality is that home may not even be there. And the second thing that many of these so-called displaced people, they're professionals. I yeah. mean, these people have far more degrees than I have. And you go into these tents and they're wearing these beautiful silk clothing. Uh, they have dignity. But talk about that. Yeah, I think, again, uh, we have to we have to adjust the image. Uh, the image of a refugee is someone who's bedraggled, um, uh, poorly educated, um, probably got into this situation by uh, some fault of their own. Whereas when you're talking simply about the Syrian refugees, uh, these are victims. Uh, these are people who have been caught in the midst of a crossfire and for the most part are trying to escape that for the safety of their own families. And these are professional people. Um, the Probably the, the lowest wage earner that I have met is a day laborer or a farmer, but this is a person who is making a regular trip uh, into vibrant farm operations across the Middle East, earning a good income, bringing it back home, and yet now finds that home doesn't exist and they're stuck. They've come across the border for the safety of their families, but there is no way for them to get uh, viable work. There is no way for them to really take care of their families well. And so you've got this kind of degrading system in which children aren't being educated and we're kind of in a holding pattern, which is truly the case of refugees around the world. You're in a holding pattern. You're, you're waiting for circumstances to change. And of course, that opens up an opportunity uh, to reach them. That opens up an opportunity to love them because we've never seen numbers like this. We've never seen opportunities like this before. Let's back up for a moment because, as you have said many times, uh, the whole topic of refugees seems to be politicized. Some liken refugees to unwanted terrorists. But in your experience, is that really the case? Uh, obviously, there's always going to be a bad apple or two that's going to uh, create a bad mess for everybody. That's true in this country. That's true in every country. So please do not hear me say that there's not going to be uh, someone who will carry their anger or their frustration and it'll reach a boiling point and they will do something. Um, but the truth of the matter is, in all of my experiences in the 14 times I've traveled throughout Lebanon, Jordan, uh, along the border of Syria, uh, the people that I meet are families. It's men and women and their children who are desperately in need of hope and looking for an opportunity to return to life as normal, whatever that means, and realizing that whatever they had is gone, and yet trying to figure out what does the future hold and what do I do now? And it's not unlike anybody in a similar situation would have similar thoughts, similar ideas, similar needs for their own families. And so I think when we begin to cobble that as an understanding of what truly is the issue, it softens our hearts because in many ways, we're not unlike them. We could be in a, in a certain, in a moment, uh, finding ourselves in a situation which we never called on 
out of control and in need of help. And I mean, it truly is amazing, uh, their receptivity to World Vision and your partners that are coming, you know, in Jesus' name and showing yeah, this love. And, and they're, they're just so welcoming. Well, Matthew 25 uh, has still been such a massive uh, set of verses for us, you know, where Jesus, you know, talks about the difference between sheep and goats. And you definitely want to be a sheep, spoiler alert, uh, where he, he basically says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. You clothed me. As we have reached in to these refugee settlements, communities, and attempted to understand what are the baseline needs. And some of these are really basic. It's the kind of stuff you and I take so much for granted. It's the clean water, it's food, it's education for my kids, it's a safe place for my children. Uh, it's, it's a way of relating husband and wife. Um, how do we do that in the midst of so much trauma? Uh, World Vision has stepped in to try and provide resources that would minister to them in their hour of need. And the impact back has been electric as we watch these people's receptivity to us, to our people, be wide open. We are considered family to them in light of the fact we've come to them in their hour of need. And frankly, that's not altogether different from if some kind of tragedy, you mentioned the fires in California, that is no different from a fire that would hit a community and people showing up to be available to them in their hour of need. So Matthew 25 continues to just kind of bear itself out, and we're doing it because we were loved this way by Jesus. Yeah, you just wonder when Jesus said to the disciples, when I was hungry, you, you, know, you, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink and, and so forth. And, and the disciples are scratching their head, and they're saying, Jesus, you know, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, right. you know, without clothing, without shelter? And he says, as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And it just, it makes you wonder, Steve, if Jesus was remembering back to the time when he and his family were unwelcomed and unloved and wandering throughout the desert. I think that's a powerful point. Uh, when someone, I was in a speaking on this particular subject and someone was really attempting, doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Uh, was trying to take me to task for helping out with refugees, especially Middle East refugees. And rather than trying to approach him uh, or confront him um, as to what I felt was somewhat racial or ethnic bias, I, I just said, wait, the very one that we are worshiping, the very one that we're following at one point was a Middle Eastern refugee. Should that not at least give us pause to at least reflect what was his experience? What could I do to make it different? Um, what, why did the Lord allow that to be part of his history? What, how, how instructive is that to me today, especially in light of passages like Matthew 25? Because I think you're accurate. I think Jesus in many ways was reflecting on the experience of living in a refugee way and what it takes to actually come alongside. Well, when you Look at this many people uh, that have been displaced since World War II, right? As far yeah. as just the size. Yeah. You have to ask, T, 
two questions. What is God up to and what's the enemy up to? We know what the enemy's up to. John 10.10, to rob, steal, and destroy. And you see these people, you know, many of them have lost their husbands and their fathers because of ISIS or, or they've been maimed. But what is God up to? Well, God is opening the door to great ministries like World Vision to share the love of Jesus in a very tangible and dignified way. Let's talk about that, Steve. How is World Vision helping the Syrian refugees? And then let's segue into how we can help World Vision in doing that. Well, again, as I said, there are some very, very basic needs that are gaps that have been created because these people are in a very difficult spot. And some of them are so basic as to have uh, someone who's just hearing this, maybe even rolling their eyes. Latrines, clean water, uh, cash cards so that you can actually go and make purchases at a local store with dignity, Um, insulation for your tent, because in the winter they actually get snow and and, uh, temperatures that are freezing. Uh, and and ways to to reinforce the tent so it doesn't collapse. Heating systems like a stove. And when I say stove, I'm not talking about the range that you and I might have in our homes. I'm talking about a little pot belly stove that not only heats but also can serve as a cook uh, a cooking device. Um, these kinds of ingredients so that life can become manageable or livable. And we do that not just as one organization amongst many others that the UN has oversight of. We do that also with partners. And one of the great things that we're delighted to have is Christian partners like churches or Christian agencies that also feel this demonstrative push because of what God has done for them to come alongside these betraggled masses that have inundated across both Syria, Turkey, Jordan, any caller country around Syria. And that's who our partners are as we work alongside. You've made the statement, if we do not educate these kids, then they could become the next ISIS. And spending time in your schools uh, there, for example, in Lebanon, incredible. I mean, just it's it's top notch. I mean, professional, clean. And these kids are so happy. Talk about the education program that World Vision has for these kids? Well, I think you uh, alluded to it. The One of the biggest issues we've got right now is roughly a quarter of the children are getting an education. It's probably um, easy to, to consider that when a child goes across a border, the educational system they left may in fact be different from the one in which they arrived at when they came into this new environment. So if you're going out of Syria and you're coming into Lebanon, you're going to go from an Arabic system into a French system. That's just Syria to Lebanon. That would be a little bit like you're only using an Apple device and suddenly you're in Microsoft territory. Uh, The operating system's different. You don't have certain kinds of preschool help uh, to launch if you're coming out of Syria. So if someone does not come in and provide that, then that refugee child is at a severe disadvantage not to speak that they're already a refugee and already disadvantaged. And there's a very good chance that if someone doesn't provide that gap, fill that gap with preschool, something as simple as preschool, shouldn't say as simple, it's actually rather complicated. (laughs) But if they do not provide that preschool element, that child will not go on and get an education. 
Now, if I'm right that half of the refugees that have left Syria are children, you're talking about 2.5 to 3 million kids, 20% are getting an education. Well, what happens to the rest of them? What happens to a child who doesn't get educated? Mm-hmm. What happens to a child that's living in a tent mm-hmm. and watching their parents frustrated day after day? Mm-hmm. No hope. Yep. And I guarantee you, not all those children will pass away. And so when they become 15 to 18 and actually have some agency to do something, what will they do? And unfortunately, our sordid history and, and our knowledge of brain science is such that when a brain has been traumatized, soaked in cortisol for such a long length of time, it's not that they will walk away from or move away from those things which were so traumatic. No. In fact, brain science experts will tell us they'll actually end up probably doing the very thing that was done to them. And so the chance to act, the time to move, to provide some of these basic structures is now. Now so that 15 to 20 years from now, the end result is healthy citizens that actually could lead their country into a preferable future versus one that's degrading and actually doing the very thing that was done to them except this time in numbers that boggle the imagination. And these children, they're going to remember who served them and their families instead of becoming angry at the world, you know, filled with, with hate and violence. Instead, they remember, they remember an organization called World Vision, a church that cares, that came showing the love and compassion of Jesus Christ, but also the dignity And Steve, I remember in Kenya, uh, working there with Convoy of Hope in the Mathari Valley, one of the worst slums in the world. And there was this little girl who was perched up on a rock. Uh, Her hair was matted down, uh, face covered with dirt, her white dress clouded with dust. And my first thought was this. This is going to be a great photo. She is a poster child. Uh, for need in these slums, and then something happened that I will never forget. It messed me up for life, because as I was about to take the photo, a hand went over the lens. I looked up, and it was the girl's mom, and she was waving her hand at me. I thought she was saying, no, you cannot take a photo of my daughter in this condition. Well, she went over, found a little water, She put it on her dress, the mom did, wipes off the dirt of her daughter's face, fixes her hair, brushes off the dust, and then gives me permission to take the photo. My first thought was, you have ruined my picture, the picture I'm going to use to raise money to help children like your daughter. But then I thought, isn't that what any mother would do? And one of the many things I love about World Vision is how you go the extra mile to not only preserve the dignity of these children and their families, but to lift that dignity so they see how valued they are in God's name. Well, we're all dealing with these image bearers, aren't we? Uh, These are the image bearers of God himself, the Imago Dei. And that is actually something that should drive us 
in walking alongside these refugees. They're not refugees to us, by the way. We learned this from a pastor that's uh, working up in the Kurdish region of Iraq. He said, we don't call them refugees, we call them relatives. Mm. And he said, we do that specifically so that we do not forget these are human beings made in God's image, image bearers, just like us, caught in a situation that in if we were in the same situation, we would we would pray, we would hope that there would someone who would come alongside us and love us and love us. And so as we have been loved, as we have been loved, we reach out as the hands and feet of Jesus in the way in which we've been loved and love in return. And we love these people who in many cases around the world are not loved. I, I do think of one pastor in particular, just as you've had this image from Kenya that is so dominant, it's an image for me that's dominant as well of a pastor who told me that at one day, he said, he told us in a luncheon meeting, one day this war will be over. You can imagine all of our minds are going, do you know, do you know what day that is? Mm-hmm. Uh, one day this war will be over. And what they return to their country with mm-hmm. is what we gave them. And with that, he looked at his watch. He literally looked at his watch and he said, are you done here? And I remember thinking, wow, that's really rude. Um, mm-hmm. In our country, you would never you would never kind of make a statement like that. Then look at your watch as though you've had enough of us. And then ask us if we're done. And we said, we are done. And with that, he said, thank you very much. Almost as though he had, he was missing a meeting and he got up and left this fairly nice restaurant and took off. Well, our group immediately joined in conversation. And one of the guys said, well, that was rude. And someone else agreed with that, said, in our country, you would never do that. And then one of the guys who never speaks much, but when he did, you listened. He said, what did he say before he looked at his watch? What they return with is what we gave them. Mm -hmm. And then he turned to all of us and he said, he's on the clock. He knows he's on the clock. He knows he doesn't have all the time in the world. And we're kind of taking up that time by asking these questions. They may even be silly questions, but we're asking these questions. He's got a job to do. And by God, every one of us felt like we wanted to be with him in that moment. Mm. The paradigm had changed. And I think for Mm -hmm. us as the church, I think we have to look at these issues as God uh, opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to do the very thing that Matthew 25 basically directs us to do. And in doing so, watch what God's going to do, because God is moving and he's moving in a demonstrative way. And we get to actually be a part of it if we so choose to open our eyes and engage. Well, let's talk about how to be a part of it. What are some practical steps where we can join arms with World Vision and wrapping our arms around our Syrian brothers and sisters? Well, one of the ways is even just getting on our website and and looking up what we're doing in and around refugees, worldvision.org. And you're going to see all sorts of articles or pictures that help kind of paint the picture for how World Vision's engaged. Someone might want to financially engage in that way, uh, providing, just as I said, clean water, education, uh, cash cards so that they can actually go and buy ingredients for their families, insulation, or just friendship with some of these church partners that we're coming alongside as they reach in, in a very practical way, to these refugees. Another way is pray. 
um, that people would actually pray, not just for the refugees, but pray for their own church, that they would catch a vision for what God's doing in the world with this very, very large issue, 70 million plus people. And then maybe the third way is maintain a vigilance, a, a, a way in which you're going to kind of pay attention to information that's produced on refugees. I found that when I bought a, a Prius, I actually drive a Prius, yes. I sometimes <laughs> as, a, as a man, you're sometimes afraid to say that, but I'm not, I like it, it's a good car. When I bought a Prius, everybody was driving a Prius. I hadn't really noticed Priuses until I bought one. And then suddenly my eyes were open to all sorts of issues that dealt with battery operated cars. When you start making a commitment that you're going to pay attention to refugees, when you give to a refugee issue, it's amazing how many articles on refugees are suddenly available. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because you, one, I think the internet starts figuring out that you want articles on that and they start directing you those kinds of articles. But I think even more than that, I think God goes, ah, here's one. Here's one of my emissaries. Here's one of my operatives. They have a heart like I've got. I care about refugees. They care about refugees. I'm going to make sure that they're wired for refugees. But I think it begins with us praying, open information, and engaging. And when we do that, God finds an operative and starts filling them with his power, his understanding, and his engagement tools, and away we go. Amen. Steve Haas serves as the catalyst for World Vision and evidently a catalyst for Prius and electric cars. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, thank you for joining the... Appreciate it. Thank you, friend. I hope you enjoy listening to Influencers on the Charisma Podcast Network. Join us next week for another thought-provoking episode. And remember to use your influence to move people closer to Jesus. Jesus.